You awake? Yeah. I just want you to know I hate you. So is my dad. Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God! Why don't you tell me a story? How do you sleep at night? I don't want to hang out with a bunch of wannabe corporate sellouts. Check, check, check. Did you ever hear the story about how John had to quit smoking cigarettes? No. Uh, He smoked cigarettes for 35 years. Uh, He bought, like, a pack when he was 14 years old when his dad let him do it, and he smoked the entire pack in a bathroom that day so he could see how cool he looked. And he smoked every day for 35 years, and he got cancer. And the night before he had the surgery, the day before, his doctor said, I can't 100% tell you that these cigarettes gave you cancer, but wouldn't it be a great, great idea to stop today? So, so he stopped. So that's that's when he stopped. But he, uh, he, so he tells the story that song that's that's at the end of the last record. That's that when I get to heaven. Yeah. That says, um, I'm going to smoke a cigarette that's nine miles long. Is because he said he he says when he introduces that song when he, that when that tour first started is that he misses it so much that if he goes outside and he sees somebody spark one up he'll go and just stand next to them to smell it of, he, of all the rock and roll dudes that's a guy who definitely like I'm glad he's hanging on but it also you see him and you're like he's yeah. hanging on by a thread yeah well it's weird like his wife who clearly is like maybe younger than me is managing him Oh, um, really? Yeah, and yeah. I remember being... Um, you know the story about this last record? Oh, man. I can tell you the whole thing. To, okay, tell yeah. me the whole thing. Well, I mean, if you want to. So he didn't make a record for 13 years, and he got... So his wife and his, his son runs the, the record label, and they both said, you should make a record. So they sent him to the Omni in Nashville with 10 boxes of lyrics, three guitars and a ukulele, and put him in a suite for a week... And he came out with 10 songs. And that's how it worked. And the last song... Is the one about opioids on this record? No. Do you know which one I'm talking about? No. I don't know what that is. Well, maybe the video is more directly about opioids. Yeah. Anyway, it, I like I can't get through the video. I've turned it off. It's I so Im- I haven't seen impacting. That. We'll yeah. have to look it up. The last song on that record is my favorite John Prine song. And I know there's just people love John Prine. I mean, he's been making records for longer than I've been alive. Right? Yeah. But it's it's it was his happy hour song because he said you know he would write songs. And he, it would be late at night, like not like normal time, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah. five o'clock, but he would have his own five o'clock. And when he would get finished writing, he had this song in his head all the time that said, I'm going to have a cocktail, vodka and ginger ale. And so he thought, <laughs> if I can just put my happy hour song in a song on yeah, this I record. Mean, that's that's great. So he added that. And then the story about wanting to smoke a cigarette and where could you smoke that cigarette in heaven? That's hilarious. So that's the that's the uh, thing. Do you know Do you know he wrote "You Don't Even Call Me by My Name," the David Allen Coe song? He did. Yeah. So yes, yeah. There's a guy named Steve Goodman, and Steve Goodman was a friend of his in Chicago. And Chris Christopherson saw Steve Goodman and said, "You are amazing. We need to sign you to a a record deal." And Steve Goodman said, "You need to go see my friend." Literally, instead of like taking the deal, did Steve Goodman ever get a record deal? Oh yeah, they both did. So he he gets Christofferson and someone else, and they go across town and they go watch John Prime play. And he so Christofferson stays, and when they finish, Christofferson says, "I want you to play the whole set again, and then play me anything else you got." And so like 
right after that, like within the week, Steve Goodman and John Prine fly to New York. They get off the plane. They go to the village, and Christofferson's playing, and they just go to see him play. And he says, I want both you guys to get up and do three songs and play. And Jerry Wexler from Atlantic Records was there, and he went up to John Prine after the show and said, won't you come see me tomorrow? And he signed Atlantic Records the next morning. What was he doing at the time? Like, um, what was his day job? He he was he was doing music at night. So he, he was right across from Second City in Chicago, and, like, Bill Murray and those guys would come see him play. And so... Prine is one of those guys that I know people from all walks of life, which is, like, a generic weird thing to say, but, like, I know... So many people that love Prine, and it doesn't fit into a box. Like, oh, these people yeah. love all country, or these people love singer songwriters, or these—I mean, it's like people who love everything. Yeah, they randomly also love John Prine. Yeah, and I and I and I think it's some of that like working man appeal, like Springsteen. Like, not everybody loves Springsteen, but yeah. most people do. Like, yeah. at least to a certain degree, and it's definitely some of that appeal. But he has been doing like. So when was that? Uh, early seventies. And so let me let me wrap it back around to Steve Goodman. So Steve Goodman gets a record deal too. And they finally wrote a song together and they were in a hotel and it had booze and they went and clogged up, like plugged up the sink and took all the booze, like everything, like, you know, Jack Daniels and tequila and rum. Like they just made like this weird thing and drank it. And then they wrote, you don't have to call me darling. (laughs) They wrote that song. And then after they wrote it, John Prine asked if he could not have a songwriting credit because he thought it was a joke, a novelty song, and he didn't want the Nashville establishment to blackball him for writing that song because the song was kind of a one of these so he middle finger. He, he literally doesn't have the songwriting credit on it. He he didn't, but he plays it like he started. Pl- like he eventually he. Well, at a certain point, now he's bulletproof. Yeah, in, in the eyes of those folks. Yeah, so he he plays it. Well, I've think seen about how that song is. I mean, he was smart though because like no one really respects David Allen Coe. Now part no. of part of that is he's a racist. Well and also like remember when we were on radio and he used to play that club of how do I say this on a family friendly show? Oh, we'll just say it. The strip club. Uh, and they would yeah. the VIP seats were around an above ground pool. <laughs> do you yeah. remember that yeah, whole I do. thing? Like, yeah. Hold on. True story. <laughs> they call me and they go, hey we want you to give away because we worked at a country radio station. Yeah. We want you to give away tickets to see David Allen Co. VIP. And I was like, this is great. Is this happening at the you know the Live Nation venue in town? They're like, no. no. It's happening at the Rustic Frog. Yeah. And off and, the highway. But the great the news is these seats are poolside. I am not making this story up. And this uh, to clarify this is not John Prime. This is for a David Allen Coe show. And uh, this is in the last, I don't know, 10, 12 years. It's 10 years. And, uh, Since we've known each other. And so we were working together at that time, right? Yeah. During I've, this whole thing. But you went and I've never been there. No, I didn't go. Okay. I've never been there either. No, 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 no. I just saw pictures. So the rep who sold it went. came, it was like, I was like, he described to me poolside at the Rustic Frog and he came back with pictures and it was an above ground pool in a field and they had set lawn chairs around it. Like pool chairs and on this deck the that they built around. Yeah, did I not tell you this whole thing? Yeah, I, yeah. I thought it was a hot tub. Like, I thought it was even grosser. I think it was best was the rep. It was. And, uh, and yeah. he came back with pictures on his phone, which is the most best thing ever. Best is actually part of the reason we ever started podcasting together. Well, to the degree yeah. we started podcasting right. together. He, he is, man, he doesn't even know. He doesn't know. I and I haven't seen, I, I, the last time I saw best, this is a diversion, the last time I saw best was in a parking lot 
I was picking something up because we're friends with his wife too. Yeah. And uh, there was something, I don't remember what it was, but there was some something she and I were working on together or something and he was making a delivery. I remember as part of it, I think it was a thank you or something and there was like a case of Rolling Rock involved because she's always known that I love Rolling Rock. Um, but I just saw, and he was like, this was years, still, this was probably five years ago and he was just still like, he was best. He was just giant smile, like, yeah. but also kind of looks like he'd sell you insurance. Like it was yeah. the whole thing. But also like hasn't aged like a man that no he is incredibly handsome <laughs> yeah i mean like unbelievable there's Zula- i used to say that all the time I was like, and it made them so uncomfortable because i would just say it in front of him i'd be like i clearly brought the best looking guy i know to this deal today would we yeah yeah i remember he really liked pole position and i, I was at the zanzibar i was at zanzibar and told him they had the sit down pole position game and i called him and it sounded like i told him that like bob dylan was at the you know the steak and shake like he freaked out and it hung up and came like he arrived to play hold, hold pole on. position. Can we please? I'm caught up on your analogy. Can we please do Dylan at a steak and shake impressions? <laughs> what do you I'll, order? Babe, I'll give you the strawberry banana what, shake. What do you order? It. What's the? Uh, can I, what's can the I get, sandwich? Can I get the fries? I need the devil steak burger. <laughs> I, kinda, I don't know. I kind of sound like a muppet right now. I don't really sound like what he sound like at all, man. <laughs> I'm not what he sound like at all. <laughs> He doesn't sound like that at all. I remember the first time I heard one of the Dylan records where he like actually sang and I was kind of just like, I didn't know what to make of it. Like yeah. I remember where I was on the road the first time like someone put one in and I was like driving and I was like, this is Bob Dylan too. Like he can do this, but he chooses to do this. Yeah. Anyway. Acquired taste. By the way, David Allen Coe, when he was nine years old, ended up like in some boarding school and then a little after that, he went to prison and stayed in prison until, you know, for like 10 years or so and then he got out and like that's 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 who you get to sing your song that's that's him that's him and he, well and with that background you're like of course you're playing poolside at a strip club yeah and he knew some other people he wasn't like just this lone you know weirdo like he he had an interesting circle of other songwriters they're real popular guys but you did, know did he have another radio hit yeah he uh take this job and shove it no it was johnny paycheck Oh, it was Johnny Page. I can't believe you just did that. Yeah. I, I've never seen Dead you Kennedys. stumble over something like that. I know. Because when I hear that song, I think of the Dead Kennedys. and not, no, that, That's fair. Yeah. Um, My bad. So, wow. Um, then no. <laughs> there was a movie. Do you remember Take This Job and Shove It movie? Yeah, actually, I think I read a whole thing about this movie. Like, I don't think I knew this movie existed, and then I think I read about it recently. Who was in it? Keaton? Michael Keaton? Right? Oh no, maybe this isn't what I'm thinking of. There is a, you know, what I'm thinking of randomly is because we're on this subject of people in that kind of uh, period of time as songwriters. The Towns Van Zant movie. Do you remember this? Like nah. the movie, and it had Johnny Knoxville in it. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Okay, so this movie is called. I'm going to Google. Pause as I Google Johnny Knoxville Towns Van Zant movie. Take this job and shove it. Is it? A, oh no no no! Take this job and shove shove it is a amazing movie and it has Robert Hayes from Airplane in it. Really? Oh yeah. And da- yeah. Yeah. And David Keith Govals, Martin Mole. <laughs> he said Govals. He is, he's he was a guy. Uh yeah. um you know it's not oh. Town, it's not Towns Van Zant. 
it's it's Graham Parsons. The Graham Parsons oh, yeah, the Johnny Gra- Knoxville movie. Oh yeah, that's yeah. what I meant. Yeah, I was gonna say. Well, the only movie I think of him with music is the Graham Parsons movie. Gra- where, Grand Theft Parsons. Yeah, where he <laughs> I like st- how I was like, what's that movie called? <laughs> yeah, the one where they steal his body from the airport and he goes and burns it in Joshua yes. Tree and it doesn't work. So this was the thing that I didn't know about any of that. Yeah, that's a rock and roll bedtime story right I, there. Yeah, I know all about that deal. Okay, let's talk about this. This is crazy to me. Yeah, yeah. He was came from a very wealthy family, like the or, like Florida orange like grove, like they, they okay. grew oranges. Yeah, and he like threw that whole thing away, and then you know he he OD'd, and the family wanted to get the wanted to have a proper burial, and then this guy who Johnny Knoxville plays in the movie goes and steals the body from the airport because I guess they had talked at one point and. Graham Parsons was like, well, if anything happens to me, this is what I want to have yeah, happen. So Phil Kaufman is the guy's name. Phil Kaufman, yeah. So he's the tour manager, and they they make a pact, a mutual pact, yeah. that they're going to bury each other. Like, whoever dies first, the other person buries them. This yeah. is crazy. So, first of all, I forget about Graham Parsons' rock and roll history. Like, the guy has Stones. been there in all these rooms, and, and I remember, so my wedding present from my best friend, who was in my wedding party um, who we've talked about on the show before yeah. the, or what well, we talked about on story guys um, so he bought me the Graham Parsons box set that was the wedding present oh I had that it was so good <laughs> and it's so, so you so did you listen to it a lot um, I you know to be honest I really haven't he's always Graham Parsons was one of these guys who you still because got it? I do, I'll pull it out in a second okay. it's right there um, in the studio so I was aware of and into Graham in the sense that he was a huge influence on Adam Duritz. And people know about me, my favorite band of all time, unapologetically is the Counting Crows. Adam Duritz is one of my musical heroes. And uh, so I came to Graham. I came to Towns Van Zandt. I came to several other people like that through Adam Duritz talking about them. And yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so he bought me the Graham Parsons box set, but I didn't ever... Like, even though Graham comes up all the time and other things, the real legacy he left behind with the birds into the Flying Burrito Brothers. Yeah, yeah. And, but for me, really, the legacy that he never will fully ever get credit for, because he didn't have songwriting credits, is the Stones. What did he write for the Stones? He didn't. So people do think that like, cause they hear the, the, is this like they, a Harper Lee Truman Capote thing? Well, no, it's like they hear, you hear the flying burrito brother, you hear wild horses and people are like, didn't he write that? It's like, it does. It does sound like a great right. song. But then after, like after that period of like, is like 72 sticky fingers. So that's, that's sort of the era when him and Richards met and were hanging out and doing very bad things together you started seeing these country songs started to slip into the canon. So you saw these like, you know, slower country songs like Sweet Virginia that's yeah, on Exile yeah. on Main Street. And then on uh, Some Girls, which now is like, that's like 78. So that's past his death or whatever. Far Away Eyes, which they play. I love Far Away Eyes. Right, right. They they play that in Nashville, um, which is funny. Like, they, like Jagger puts on the hat and Ronnie Wood comes out with the pedal steel and they play it like you know unapologetically as country as so so the idea is either they were ripping Graham Parsons off or Graham Parsons was there yeah he was just a he was a big influence on because I mean Richards was you know it's Chuck Berry man like there's I think that that he was a great influence on him but I think that he was a very bad influence socially and they didn't like him being I don't think that he was very popular to, for everyone
anyone else for him being around. Well, and he also overdosed. Do you know what he overdosed on? Graham Parsons. Is it morphine? Yeah. Yeah. So that's an interesting thing that we don't need to get into here, but the history of opioids starts with overprescription of morphine. Yeah. It was that the Rolling you know, Stones have a song about. Well, and <laughs> yo, but right? here's the thing: like, I never made that. I didn't. I mean, this is maybe just because I didn't get into a lot of drugs. I never really made that connection until I started researching opioids, kind of the, in the crisis and all that kind of stuff over the last several years. Yeah. And the historical line between overprescription of morphine and then massive epidemic, especially among musicians, especially jazz musicians, yeah. which is a whole other thing, sure. of overdosing on morphine, and then how that's kind of been wiped from the conscious consciousness, so people don't really talk, like people aren't like, oh, we're going to get some morphine, right? It's all in pill form now. It's just technological innovation, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's all kind of the same thing, which I never really realized. So essentially, just to translate it to cultural understanding, it's kind of like a opioid overdose. I mean, you know, what, yeah. what he did. Yeah, totally wouldn't even think of that. But don't you think about Elvis. What about Elvis? I mean, he didn't technically OD on op- opioids. Like, he had a heart attack trying to take a dump because he was constipated from taking so many pills. Yeah. That's what that's what happened to him. Like the pills didn't kill him, but they did. So to Graham Parsons, let's talk about his history real quickly. So Amy Lou Harris, dude, on that box set, there's a radio show with him and Amy Lou Harris that's on there that is gorgeous. You're gonna love it when you get in there. So Trust me. he is in the birds. Sweethearts of the Rodeo. Yeah. That's kind of the album where people are paying attention to Graham Parsons. Who yeah. else is in the birds at this point? Uh, McGuinn, David Crosby. Crosby gets kicked out first. So McGuinn's technically the leader. Uh, and then the uh, whatever the other guy's name that went to the Burrito Brothers with him. I forgot. I still remember the first time I heard Eight Miles High. It was on a yeah. Time Life compilation of whatever year that was. And this is why I'm obsessed 65. with collecting those Time Life compilations now. And I remember putting it on and listening to the 12 string. That's the song with the 12 string intro, right? Yeah. And just being like, oh my God, this is what a 12 string. Because my dad had just bought a 12 string guitar and I didn't Your really dad understand. Had a 12 string guitar? Like a harmony. Like nothing like you know, expensive. But so I would thumb around on it, but I never learned how to play it to make it sound like that. And, uh, so I remember hearing that for the first time and being like, Oh my gosh, like this is so rock and roll, but it's also so beautiful and interesting sounding. And like when I describe the sound, is this weird? When I describe the sound of a, um, a 12 string guitar, I would describe it like as a waterfall. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. 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 Like that's a great description of what a 12 string is. And I just remember there is a massive waterfall at the beginning of eight miles high. And it's great because I feel like it creates this auditory thing with what a waterfall would sound like eight miles high up in the air. Anyway. Yeah. I love that song. Yeah. That was recorded in music row in Nashville. Um, yeah, they record. Yeah, it was recorded in Hollywood too. But yeah, they recorded it in Nashville. So, which is the famous version? Nashville. I mean, part of it they did. Oh, like, they did, they did. Oh, okay. Yeah, they did like two. So that was actually '68. Sweethearts, sweet sweethearts of the rodeo is, but that's not on that record, right? Eight Miles High. It's not on Sweethearts. No. So then he and Chris Hillman, Chris he Hill, being thanks, he being uh, our guy Graham, they do Flying Burrito Brothers. So is he not? He's not in the birds at this point. Yeah, he leaves. He, he gets le- 
he gets kicked out yeah. for drugs, most yeah. likely, though it's kind of unsubstantiated. Yeah. And then... And you know, like, uh, and they kicked out Crosby because kind of how they wanted him out of, like, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, like, he's kind of a jerk. Yeah. I mean, reoccurring on Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a theme. Uh, a lot of musicians with a lot of vision are jerks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so he gets, yeah, so he gets kicked out. He gets kicked out of the So, birds. So, Flying Burrito Brothers in 69, so... Eight Miles High, 68. So Graham's on that record, right? Yeah. And then 69, he's out and he does Flying Breeder Brothers with Hillman. Gilded Palace is in. That's it. Yeah. And then a second album in 70, but at this point, and he's on that album, but then he gets kicked out, right? Yeah. Which, and at that point, it's like, you know, he has a solo career. And then. And this is when the Amy Lou Harris stuff. Yeah. Yeah. GP, I think, is the first record. Yep. And then. 73. Yeah. Grievous, Grievous Angel. Right? Yeah. And that's after he dies. Yes. Yeah. So that's all I've got in my head that I can remember from memory without me going to the Wicca. And so this is how... Now, some people might say they don't love Graham because he led a direct line to the Eagles. <laughs> yes. Like, I've never understood the, the overt hatred for the Eagles. Is I it do. the commercialization of this sound? Is that what people don't like? Yeah, it's the, it's what's well, the, for, for radio guys, it's the Q-burn, but for regular people, it's the fact that people have had to hear the Eagles for explain Q for, explain Cuba when when records when they used to play records on the radio you would you would like disable the um, you would disable the the uh, what do you call it the the thing underneath the, the record and then you would actually take the record and go backwards with it so it go and you would do it till it would stop and you knew oh yeah that's where the song starts and so then the needle would sit right there so you'd play a song so much it would put like a little indention in there and so radio guys called that the Q burn so radio played these eagle songs to death for now a half of a century and you know people hate them for that reason versus the fact of i really think that whether it's the merit or if the songs are good or whatever like some of those I think some of those songs are gorgeous songs Best of My Love Tequila Sunrise like the really mellow ones I think those are gorgeous but they've they've just been burned into the consciousness of like everyone's got to hear those songs because of rock radio and classic rock radio and they're just you know they're over it they don't want to hear Hotel California again I don't want to hear Hotel California right see it was, like, it was just like a reaction. Like, that was an immediate reaction. So, back to the good old days of country rock, when Parsons is doing a lot of drugs and writing songs. Um, we get to, we've gotten basically to the end of his life, right? So, this album comes out in 74 after he dies. But in 73, he is alcohol and morphine together overdoses. And he has this pact with Phil Kaufman, who was his tour manager. Yeah. And they say, and I guess Phil Kaufman is probably a rock and roll bedtime stories episode of his own, maybe that we should research, uh, because he is known for road exploits with guys like Frank Zappa, um, (laughs) stuff with Nancy Griffith, which is not really what you think of. Um, he was kind of called the road mangler, which I don't even know what that means. Uh, and so because they have this pact, he literally steals Graham Parsons' body. Yeah. It's totally weird. This it, is crazy. So they were they were going to ship it from L.A. to Louisiana. Yeah. 
He's originally from Waycross, which Georgia. is what which the the guy says. Don't do this. Like Graham Parsons says, don't do this. Yeah, he, he dies. Work. Like he yeah. said like, to several friends, I guess. So Phil decides because the family or whatever's doing this, he's going to go in and take the body. Yeah. And then he takes it to Joshua Tree, which is where I mean you've been telling this story. So they, it's crazy. Should we make a plan? On our each other's bodies, if something happens, goes wrong. Like, is this what best friends do? So Phil are like, like, when does this come up? Is it just something happens when you do a lot of drugs? You're like, let's talk about what happens if one of us dies. This is the conversation you have if when you know it's starting to become daylight. It is. It is. It's one of those. It's one of those long, long nights. Listen, man. Listen, man. That's that's what happens. You end up having one of those conversations. <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, there's more to it, right? Yeah. So he, he drives him to Joshua tree because they had this plan involved Joshua tree national park. I want to say very quickly, this has nothing to do with Graham Parsons that I'm a huge fan of the short story writer. Well, the writer, Karen Russell, who has written novels and some great short stories. And she has a short story in her newest collection called orange world about a couple who, Honeymoons in Joshua Tree, uh, and it's amazing. And that's all I'm going to say. It's just absolutely amazing. She is just one of the most amazing writers. You need to find it. Anyway, I you, forget what it's called, but it's in Orange World. You'll find it quickly. Do you want... Who, which one of us should tell how he lit the body on fire? Well, this, this is you. Go. So, he steals the coffin, <laughs> and he pours gasoline on it, and lights it on fire. That's what he does. In Joshua Tree. Yeah. Which, okay. Which... Should we review Which what? doesn't... Which doesn't burn the body. Let's talk about the fact that you're in a desert <laughs> around a lot of brush and you decide to light a match. Yeah. Not a good look. Not a good look. Uh, so, so, what, he, so what happens to him? Yeah, he gets arrested and guess what? Well, he, well he, should we describe what happens to the casket? It basically becomes a fireball. Yeah. And his, bo- and his body doesn't burn. So his, he opened the casket, but his body still didn't burn all the way, right? Um, and he, he got a fine. <laughs> but he technically, for some reason at the time, there was no law for him stealing that body. Isn't that weird? This is the insane part of the story. Yeah, he didn't get... So, he, can you imagine... Let's just... For a minute. It's, like, there, it's easy to be on this... $750 fine. It's the coffin. There, <laughs> it is. They were fined $750 for stealing the coffin. So... And not, and not prosecuted for leaving 35 pounds. 35 pounds. That's what was left of Graham Parsons. <laughs> oh, my God. But then, you know... His his body went to the family. It's like what was left of it. So let's just be on the other side of the story for a minute. Imagine being his family. Yeah, they I wanted, mean it is messed up, right? So like, and they wanted his money. I mean, we can we can play that game. They wanted they they wanted his money. The family wanted his money. Yeah, and and that's why he hatches his plan with Phil. Is what you're speculating? Yeah, it's like, listen, my family's no good. They're going to be after my cash because I have a little bit of it because I'm an amazing musician who, despite my drug problem, has been in two or three of the most influential bands of all time. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a there's an easy mythology here. But, like, somebody in that family probably cared about him. And it's pretty screwed up. It wasn't Graham's money. 
it was his grandfather's money. So you're saying it's not money that came from the music. It's nah. money that came from the oranges. He blew the, he blew the money. But his money, yeah. But his grandfather had an estate. And so his And he had money. inherited it all? Yeah. He, his, fa- his father, yeah. So it wasn't technically like bird's money. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't eight mile high waterfall money. It was his grandfather's estate. I I mean, so he had to prove that his that his, his son was a resident a resident of Louisiana. I so mean, that's why I wanted him buried there. So it is interesting. This is a great great uh, thing like story to make a movie out of. But like, no one's seen that movie, right? Um, you're sitting in a room with one person that has. I mean, I've seen part of it, I think. I, and then here's, I actually, now that I think about it, I think the way I saw it is at one point back in the day when people had cable, I turned on cable like in the middle of the night, or, you know, or something, you know, late. And I was like, what is this movie with Johnny Knoxville dressed like a country? Like, what is happening? Yeah. In terms of tomatoes, I would give it a quarter of one. It is a the movie. It is a terrible <laughs> in terms of tomatoes. Yeah, it is a terrible film. It's uh, not even a film. What I mean, what makes it so bad? It it's just not well done. You know, it's like there's since Graham Parsons isn't in the movie, like it's about it's about the crime. It's it's like a heist, and it's Johnny Knoxville, and it comes off being. Uh, you know, it's like there, there's something noble about this pact they made. And then the idea of actually doing it is unbelievable. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. But the film doesn't make it seem like it's a noble act and makes it seem like it's sort of like a heist and a little tongue in cheek. And it's like, no, it's Johnny Knoxville in a movie stealing Graham Parsons' body. It's kind of a big deal. So, but it wasn't. Uh, they didn't make it into a big deal. It's kind of a little more funny, kind of like ha ha funny. So here, here's here's something great that we will put in the show notes. So loudersound.com actually went back and did a oral history with. Phil and other people that were involved in the story. So he's actually in his own words. Of course, this is all these are the guys now living in this legend, right? Who got off scot free? Well, seven hundred fifty dollars scot free. Um, talking about how this, but here's the backstory. According out of Phil Kaufman's own mouth, as to how this pact happened. And you're right. You're right that it was a, it was after all, some drinks. Uh, just a couple of months before he died, Graham and I went to the funeral of Clarence White, who was in the birds. We'd had a few a few sherbets, he says. As, <laughs> what? Before we went. And we were saying that if Clarence had his choice, he would not have chosen that kind of high-mass Catholic funeral with all that mumbo-jumbo. So Graham said, you know what? This is BS. If I die, I want somebody to have a few beers and take me out to the desert and burn my body. Yeah. And I said, deal. But you got to do the same for me. And so then they finish Grievous Angel, and they go out to Joshua Tree to celebrate. And uh, he said, Graham just went to Joshua Tree all the time. He loved that area. He'd spent time there with the Stones, and we'd also done some filming there. So he booked a couple rooms in Joshua Tree Inn. Um, and uh, they were basically living off of um, one of his associates' money uh, in Joshua Tree. <laughs> one of my associates. Uh, wow. This is crazy. So if you if you want to actually read this oral history, it's it's really good. We'll put it in the. Um, it, it involves Phil Kaufman and Dale McElroy, who was the girlfriend of one of these guys in Graham's crew, and uh, 
it involves the phrase. Meanwhile, Michael had gone back to LA to get more drugs. <laughs> this is an insane story. Yeah, it's great. Is there a comparable story somewhere else in rock and roll history about stolen bodies, nah. end of life requests? Like, I'm wondering if there's another one we need to research. I think this maybe is lesser known. I think this is the most infamous one. This is it. Yeah, I mean, this isn't something you want to have like happening all the time. Yeah, like just in general for the human race. Like just, just, just let me let me do this out loud for you right now. Name another famous person who had their body stolen after they died. There is one, right? Do you? Have, can you think of one? Nope. What if we Google that? What will happen? Let me tell you, it's it's not going to be a musician that we care about. <laughs> It's, Hold on. Stand by. Body stolen. Body stolen celeb. We're just going to see what happens. Five famous people whose tombs are robbed. That doesn't count. That's not the same. Nope. Historical figures whose body parts went missing for strange reasons. That's not the same. Nope. Invasion of the celebrity body snatchers. Again, not the same thing. Did you ever see Charlie Chaplin's stolen coffin? Did you know about this? Well, that makes sense. Of course it went missing. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. We may have to look into that. But no, I think you're right. At least uh, from a very quick Google search, it does not appear this is a common occurrence. Yeah. Did you ever see Night Shift with uh, <laughs> Harry Winkler and uh, Henry Michael Winkler? Keaton? Yeah. The Fonzie. The Fonz and Michael Keaton? No. Uh, yeah. I saw uh, Mr. Mom with Michael Keaton. So Night Shift is a great movie to see. Uh, the Fonz, Henry Winkler plays a very square, straight uh, guy who works at a morgue. And the man who, I guess, is the manager or whatever, has his son or cousin or something come work at the, at the morgue. Uh, and it's, it's Keaton. And he is not the straight-laced guy. He's like the guy with the headphones that comes in and is like yelling and being ridiculous or whatever. And eventually they, I have to make it just short because this could go on forever. They eventually, um, the younger man, Mr. Keaton decides that they're going to run a business out of the morgue and it is business with the ladies of the night. Oh, okay. Hence like the rustic frog <laughs> night shift. <laughs> To bring it back to David Allen Cope, poolside. Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> and at one point, at one point, this is my favorite part of the whole. The, my favorite line of the whole thing is uh, is Keaton turn. He, he determined and said they don't want to be called pimps. He, he, he says, "What are we, love brokers?" And he goes, "I love that love brokers." <laughs> Remember, if you want to get involved in the show, if you've got a story you want to suggest to us that maybe we should research and talk about, you can do that easily by uh, emailing us at wearethestoryguys at gmail.com and check out wearethestoryguys.com for everything we have going on and our other podcast, which is a fake storytelling game show called The Story Guys. And remember, there's one thing we like to leave you with every time we uh, finish up a show, and that is... Keep telling stories. Keep telling stories.